Revelation chapter 2 and we'll pick things up in verse 18 and Jesus dictates this letter to the Apostle John and declares in verse 18 and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write these things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass I know your works love service faith and your patience and as for your works the last are more than the first nevertheless I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols and I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all of the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you, I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thyatira was located about 40 miles uh, southeast of the city of Pergamos and uh, it was located in a very very rich agricultural area it was famous for its agricultural uh, production including the manufacture of a purple dye that was extracted from uh, the matter root that was grown in that particular area in the ancient world uh, purple was uh, the dye to produce purple within clothing was uh, very very scarce very very valuable if you saw someone walking down the street or really in any environment and they wore something that was uh, purple you knew immediately that this person was kind of uh, fabulously uh, wealthy and of course so often through all of history uh, you know if you have it you want to let everybody know and and in that those days uh, a purple garment was a way to do that there's no biblical record of who brought the gospel or who established the church there uh, in the city of Thyatira it is interesting that Paul on his second missionary journey when he made his way uh, to uh, the continent of Europe uh, came to the city of Philippi and uh, his first recorded convert was a woman by the name of Lydia who was now living in the city of Philippi but we're told that she was a seller of purple dye from the city of Thyatira and that's led some to believe that her life having been changed by the gospel she might have then uh, returned to Thyatira let people know the gospel that had changed her life and perhaps a church was established in that way we don't know it might have been her or it might have been any one of what was literally a multitude at that time 
in the ancient world whose lives were being changed uh, by the Word of God, by Jesus Christ, and they were by persecution and by the direction of the Holy Spirit going into all of the world and taking with them this message that had changed their lives and churches were starting all over the place. The city of Thyatira was a relatively small and insignificant city in comparison to the other six uh, cities that Jesus writes the seven letters to in the book of Revelation. One ancient uh, writer in his writings it contained the phrase Thyatira and other unimportant communities. Well, enough about Escalon and uh, just kidding. You get, hey, in the eyes of, listen, if you're from Escalon, you leave me alone. You, you know you're in a good thing out there. So, uh, but, uh, you know, it's the way the state kind of looks at the whole Central Valley. But anyway, so, uh, so, but Jesus writes not because this is some prominent, uh, you know, cosmopolitan area that's impacting the whole world. He wrote to churches that were having that kind of an impact. But clearly something unique is happening in, in that time in history in uh, the church at Thyatira that Jesus uh, felt was going to be a threat to be reproduced over and over and over again by churches all through the ages and uh, so uh, he, he writes to this church to bring it to our attention so that we might um, escape the mistakes that they're making. The condition of the church in Thyatira is candidly uh, terrible, and uh, he doesn't want any church to be in that condition. I think most important for our understanding of the letter is the fact that uh, Thyatira was famous for its trade guilds. Uh, there was, uh, for a city its size, no other city its size, size had as, as many trade guilds uh, within it as they did. The closest thing that we have in, in our society that uh, corresponds to a trade guild uh, would be a, uh, a union, a work uh, labor union. Uh, but the trade guilds were far more powerful than even uh, labor unions at their height uh, of power in the United States of America, and their practices were certainly uh, very, very uh, different. There were trade guilds for uh, workers in wool, workers in leather, workers in linen, trade guilds for those that dyed uh, linen, trade guilds for potters, trade guilds for bakers, uh, workers in bronze, and uh, even trade guilds for uh, slave traders in, in the Roman Empire. The strength of these trade guilds within the city of Thyatira would have made it almost impossible for a businessman to be successful in that city without belonging to one of the trade guilds. Uh, equally, it would have been virtually impossible, at least very, very difficult, to be employed, to find work in the city of Thyatira if you did not belong to one of these trade guilds. And so you look at that and you say, well, what's the problem? Join the trade guild. Well, there were some problems with the trade guilds. The trade guild meetings were typically centered upon the worship of different pagan gods in much the way, same way that some of the, uh, you know, uh, NC2A uh, college athletics, they have their mascots and these kinds of things. All of the guilds had uh, at least one god that they worshipped and sometimes uh, more than one. 
And uh, so there was the, the worship of the different pagan gods uh, at the meetings of the trade guilds. The meetings would typically include a common meal, and uh, they would uh, begin the meeting by pouring out wine uh, to the god, uh, and then end the meeting by pouring out wine to the god. Wine represented uh, in that culture prayer. It would be like asking the blessing upon the meal and the meeting, the pouring out of the wine to uh, these uh, false gods and, and idols. And then the animal that would be eaten, the meat that would be eaten during the meeting would have been meat that would have been overtly and uh, openly uh, offered to the god or to the idol uh, prior to the meeting. So you're now eating meat that is openly associated with the worship of a pagan god and then it wasn't at all uncommon for the meeting following the meal to just degenerate into pure drunkenness and ultimately debauchery and, and open sexual in, immorality and uh, all of these things going on because these were how the gods were represented to the people and they thought as they would partake and do all of these things that the gods were joining them the gods were immoral themselves uh, in, in, uh, in how they were presented and so obviously Obviously, no Christian could uh, be uh, any part of any of this. So they're in a very, very difficult place. If they took, uh, partook of the meetings like everybody else did, then it would have been the end of the church in Thyatira then and there. There would not have been a distinction between this group that calls themselves Christians and the God that they serve and what everybody else worships because... <clears throat> I know these people, they do the same things at the trade guild meeting that everybody else does. And the church would have just been absorbed completely by the immorality of the culture. So the church depends upon uh, being their commitment to being different from the world and yet to fail uh, to uh, compromise and to refuse to join the trade guild meant for sure a great financial hardship and uh, so the question then for all the believers in the city of Thyatira was would they give their allegiance to God would they remain faithful to him or would they figure out a way in their mind to rationalize well you know a, a guy's got to eat and a guy's got to work and he's got to provide for his family and you got to do what you got to do and then uh, bow the knee to uh, the, the, the mammon or the gods that they they were worshiping and I think that uh, many of us in this room can understand uh, being put in that kind of a place in a work environment, even in, in, uh, in the United States of, of, of America. And it's a difficult place to, to be put in, but that's the background of it. He writes in verse 18 and addresses the messenger or the angel or the, the uh, pastor of the church is addressed once again. And then in verse 18, Jesus describes himself as he does in each of the letters. And he pulls this description out of himself, elements of the description of him that is given in chapter 1. And it isn't a haphazard kind of thing that he's, he's grabbing these different uh, characteristics that were mentioned of him in chapter 1 and, and uh, you know, randomly he is uh, applying these things to these different churches. He reminds these churches of something about him and his character that they are, uh, have either forgotten about and need to be reminded of or they're in a difficult kind of place and they need to be encouraged in these things about this is the way that the Lord is. And you notice he comes to them in the description 
Uh, first of all, he comes to them, verse 18, as the Son of God. And the description is from chapter 1, verse 13. And so he, he begins by reminding this church, strongly reminding them of his deity. Now, in chapter 1, verse 13, he is called the Son of Man. And, uh, and he changes it to the Son of God here in this particular place. The Son of Man is an emphasis of his humanity. He is all God, all man, all at the same time but when he refers to himself as the son of man it it uh, indicates an approachability related to him how he is related to man uh, in in the the virgin birth and and all and and so Jesus is our friend the Bible says and I, I wouldn't believe it uh, I would believe him to be this would be my concept of God is that even if he had an interest in us or that he was a lover of us, that he would, by virtue of how awesome and great that he is, that he would keep himself at a safe distance from us and uh, would never be interested in a relationship, much less one that he would call a friendship. But uh, Jesus very, very clearly, John chapter 15, said, Greater love has no man than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And he calls us his friends. Now sometimes there is a tendency, and, and obviously it happened in the church of Thyatira and has gone way beyond that. But sometimes Christians can become so uh, familiar uh, you know, so casual uh, in their relationship with the Lord. I mean, they're strong on the relationship side. They're strong on the friendship side. Um, but they need to remember He is God too. <laughs> I'm always a little troubled when He's uh, referred to as my homeboy or, you know, whatever the things are, you know, in the local culture or the generation or whatever. And uh, so He's, you, you got to be reminded once in a while, yes, He's my friend but he is the creator of the heavens and the earth by him all of it consists he's holy in a way that we can only at this point have a bare glimpse of and uh, and understanding of it and and so uh, the the uh, uh, the importance of getting both of those things uh, balanced and a sure indication that uh, a person has gone to an unhealthy extreme in the friendship side of this thing with Jesus is that uh, and, and lost a, a respect and a reverence for him and needs to return to a respect a reverence for him is if I'm living in deliberate disobedience to his word and thinking everything's okay with that just because I feel in my heart that we're close and, and things are right. Remember Jesus said, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And that has to do with me, my being a friend to him. He doesn't say, I am your friend if you do whatever I command you. That's not what he says in that passage. He says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command to you. It's the way that we have of proving our friendship uh, to to him. He doesn't cease to be our friend, but we can cease to be his friend. So he's coming to this church and he's reminding them he's God and that his word isn't uh, a collection of suggestions or things that we might think about, you know, and perhaps we'd be open to a thought or two from God and uh, that kind of thing. His word is, is commands 
And uh, they've lost that sense of that within uh, the church. Sometimes I think people can think, uh, can, he, can I have that kind of reverence and, and respect for him that I would fall you know, down, as we've even sung about, and at his, at his feet and worship him and still have that boldness to approach his throne of grace, to receive the grace and mercy in our time of need? Yes. And I think that it's most of our experience, isn't it, with him. The two things, I don't know how the Spirit works it out, but he brings both of them to our lives, and it keeps us healthy in our relationship with him. But we can get unbalanced, and they got unbalanced. And this church had lost their fear and their respect for him as uh, the Son of God. Notice he also comes to them as the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. If God ever comes to you in the middle of the night and he identifies himself as the one with eyes of a flame of fire, you'll know that's not good news. And it wasn't good news uh, for this church. It communicates two things. Number one, it communicates the fact that he sees everything. And sometimes we can lose sight of uh, that consciousness of the presence of God, that He sees everything in life. The Bible says everything is naked and open before Him with whom we have to do uh, in the book of, of Hebrews. He sees everything. But when He describes His eyes being like a flame of fire, it doesn't just speak of the fact that He sees everything, but that He then judges everything that He does see. And that he doesn't judge it by the standard of the world, but he judges it by the pure, white-hot holiness of heaven. So he sees everything, and as he sees everything, he judges it by the holiness of heaven. Now, we need that, and that's why his word is so important to us. Because the, the Word of God is a plumb line, it's a straight line, and things are so crooked in the world, if there wasn't a straight line somewhere to put up against the crookedness, we, we would fail to realize how crooked our lives are becoming or how crooked the world is, is becoming. And sometimes we can begin to think as Christians, even uh, an entire church can begin to think this, that as long as I am slightly better than the culture, Slightly less sinful than the culture, slightly less indulgent than the culture, slightly less selfish than the culture, then I'm being a witness for the Lord and the culture. That's not true. That's not the standard. The culture is not the standard. The problem is, is that if you and I start uh, 15 years ago and we've got this much distance from the culture, the culture runs, uh, is running straight up this aisle and holiness uh, looks like this over here running up, you know, uh, 12 inches away, 15 inches away from it. The problem is, is, is the culture makes a hard left uh, toward greater and greater wickedness if we just maintain the same distance, we'll find ourselves doing now uh, what we considered to be an abomination 15 years ago. The things that the world were engaged in 15 years ago, sure they're doing worse things now, but, but we're just slowly being dragged in, into wickedness. And so the Lord comes in and He speaks uh, His Word to keep that uh, from happening uh, in, in our in our lives. And so the standard for the church is the Word of God. It is not the culture. And this church at Thyatira has forgotten uh, this, and he reminds them of it. He also reminds them of the fact that his feet are like fine brass. And brass is a 
a medal uh, that symbolizes judgment in the Bible. So he is, uh, and, and the description comes from chapter 1, verse 15, and particularly speaks of judgment in association uh, with sin. So Jesus not only sees the sin, he not only sees it with a holiness, but he will also rightly uh, judge it, come down uh, with both feet on all evil and rebellion against God, so to speak. And, and so he reminds them of that fact. And so this church has lost also its fear of God's judgment. I never want to see him mad. And I never want to face him as a judge. And I never will face him as my judge because of what Jesus has done for me. But I, I, don't, I don't want him to take me into the uh, you know, shed behind the pool house and look at me cross-eyed and give me a whipping either. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying I don't want it to happen. And, and I take his judgment and, and uh, his need to judge to be a righteous God uh, seriously. Now Jesus commends this church in verse 19. He said, I know your works. And he talks about their works now, their love, their agape love. They had a love for God. And, uh, and they had a love for their, for their fellow uh, human beings. He said he commended them for their service. They didn't just talk about love, but they served the Lord. And, uh, and they served other people. So they're busy. It's a busy church. It's a hard-working church. He, he says, I know your faith. Uh, they didn't hide the fact that uh, they believed in Jesus as the Messiah. They believed in Him as the Savior of the world. They believed in Him as the Son of God. I mean, if you were to go into the foyer of the church at Thyatira, there would be the statement of faith, and they would, in terms of faith and believing all the right things about Jesus, it would all be there. Uh, and He commends them for that faith. And then he commends them for their patience or their endurance. They, they weren't quitters. They weren't uh, flaky uh, kind of people. And then he declares, as for their works, the last are more than the first. Their good works were increasing uh, more and more and more. And so, wow, that's a lot of good things. And it is a lot of good things. And uh, he probably could have wished that he was able to uh, end the letter there, but he wasn't able to do it. And he moves on in verse 20, and Jesus begins his correction or his rebuke of the church. And he begins with a rebuke of the ministry and the influence of a woman in the church by the name of Jezebel. Now there's uh, some debate, it's not hotly debated, but it is debated, about whether that was re her real uh, name. Uh, because of the stigma attached to uh, the name Jezebel by virtue of the Old Testament queen, um, many people look at that and say highly unlikely that anyone would have named their uh, baby daughter uh, Jezebel any more than you run into anyone uh, as they called roll from kindergarten all the way through graduation and even today where you don't ever hear anyone on the roll call Judas. Why? Because the, the uh, name has been so completely tarnished by Judas Iscariot, so completely identified with, with his betrayal of Jesus that nobody names their children uh, that. But you know, we can't really know. Uh, she, and, and I am personally convinced that she does hold literally the name of Jezebel, but it is also intended to remind us of the Jezebel 
of, uh, of the Old Testament. Because this new Jezebel in the church of Thyatira is doing to the church at Thyatira exactly what uh, the queen Jezebel did to the people of God in the Old Testament. You notice in verse 20 that she calls herself a prophetess. Uh, a prophetess or a prophet is one who speaks for God. The problem is, is that though she calls herself that, Jesus didn't recognize her as that. He didn't say she is a prophetess. She calls herself uh, a prophetess. In fact, she's a false prophetess. So she's claiming to speak for the Lord through the gift of prophecy, but she wasn't. And the reason that everyone could know that she wasn't is what she was prophesying did not match the scriptures. So here you have a church and here you have a religious system now in Thyatira that thinks nothing of elevating a private prophecy, elevating private revelation above the word of God, or at least uh, allowing that to happen. But the Bible teaches that all prophecy and all gifts of the Holy Spirit are to be tested by the Word of God and if it does not match the Word of God then we're dealing with a false teacher or we're dealing with a false prophet or false prophetess so you have uh, today examples of the infallibility of the Pope where what he says in the decrees that he's made uh, then that becomes higher than the Word of God and the Word of God is then subservient to uh, these decrees. That's completely backwards. I think of Joseph Smith and his uh, so-called revelation, the Book of Mormon. Why has it been given the prominence that it has? Why has it become such a gigantic uh, uh, religion when it shouldn't have uh, survived for 48 hours because people failed to judge the revelation? Uh, by the Word of God and to expose it for what it is. Then you have the so-called revelations of Muhammad in the 7th uh, century AD ultimately to become the Quran and trying to build itself upon the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures and yet it violates the teaching of both Old and, and New Testament. All examples of where individual revelations are elevated above the Word of God and uh, when they're unbiblical it does uh, great great harm and we're told throughout the scriptures that we are to test those prophecies to test anything that's said in the name of the Lord by the Word of God and if it doesn't match the Word of God then it's it's false now notice in verse 20 that her message is a twofold uh, message Number one, she taught Jesus' servants, members of the church, that it was okay to commit sexual immorality. In other words, she was teaching, uh, you can partake in the sexual immorality engaged in at uh, the trade guild meetings. I mean, a person's got to work, a person's got to eat. Now, it's interesting, I read of a letter one time, and, and I always liked it because it stuck in my heart as a, as a challenge to my heart. And uh, there was in the early church, and of course the early church, tremendous persecution against the early church. 
And when one particular uh, man was trying to lay a case for disobedience to the Word of God, he wrote to one of the leaders in, uh, in the early church and all, and, and, he, and, and, and to justify his disobedience, he, he said, A man's got to eat, uh, uh, doesn't he? And uh, the man wrote a letter back, and he just said, uh, Does he? And uh, that's, the, that's the kind of strength that's needed to stand against that, that kind of, of thing and the compromise that, that's coming here. So she's saying you can partake in all of the sexual immorality at the trade guild meetings and it's okay to be sexually immoral like the culture all around us. And she's echoing the Gnostic teaching that is, uh, is uh, very, very well established by, by the time this church is doing what it's doing. And basically one branch of Gnosticism, all that it taught was that uh, what you are in your heart and the life that you live, those are two entirely different things. It's the ultimate in uh, compartmentalization in life so you could take and, and say I'm a lover of God I, 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 he means everything to me you could sing all of the songs that we've sung uh, to the Lord tonight and then that person could say but and that's what my heart is toward God God knows my heart toward him and go out and live any kind of life that I live and this kind of teacher would encourage me that that's alright because what's most important is is what's what's in in our heart and and even if what is in our heart the life that we live is two entirely uh, different uh, things and you hear people repeat this kind of thing uh, all the time today where uh, here is a, uh, a man a young man or a young woman old man old woman <laughs> doesn't matter and uh, uh, claims to be a Christian and is living with a, a man or living with a woman and somebody confronts them related to it and and so often they'll say I know I'm right in my heart with God in my heart I know I'm I'm right with God and uh, that's self-deception Jesus said you'll know a tree by its fruit. There, Jesus said there is no disconnect between the, life, uh, the, between the life that we live and what we believe. And, and if we're going to judge uh, what is in my heart, we won't judge it by what I say is in there, but by the life that I'm living. You'll know a tree again by its, its fruit. And, uh, and so this, this kind of thing goes on all the time. I like Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 and uh, talks about uh, all of our hearts in this room apart from the Lord. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's a liar, 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 pants on fire. It's a liar. My heart lies. It's happy to lie to me. And so the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God can. God can know the heart. But our wicked hearts are not to be trusted as a witness to what is right and what is wrong. The Word of God is to be that. May I say something about uh, sexual immorality in the light of how rampant it is in the culture. And it is only becoming more and more and more heartbreakingly more so as time goes on. 
and apart from a revival that God would bring uh, to this world, I don't know that it will change. We are not animals. We are not dogs. We are human beings. We have been created in the image of God. And the sexual relationship is sacred. It is a sacred thing. And I love that to be sown into my own heart. The sexual relationship was given by God, but it's holy. It is a sacred, wonderful, sacred thing. And because it is so sacred and holy and beautiful and wonderful, God knows that it is only to be expressed within the confines of a fully committed relationship that he calls marriage. And there it can be all that he wants it to be in a person's life. And I just, I just pray for all of our hearts in the culture that as we see it represented the way that it is that we would look at it and yes it appeals to the flesh one day we'll be done with the flesh one day there'll be no desire for uh, anything like that but in the meantime to have it just planted in our hearts for the Holy Spirit to bring to our remembrance that's sacred that's sacred. That's to be something that's expressed in the way that only God knows how. That's safe for us, safe for others, good for us, good for others, and a blessing uh, to God. Now notice number two, that she taught Jesus' servants, the members of the church, that it was okay to eat things offered to idols, to engage in uh, idolatry. So she is doubtless, again, encouraging the Christians there that when you go to these guild meetings and uh, they offer these offerings to these idols, it's okay. Uh, you know, don't sweat worshiping them and, and all of these kinds of things. Uh, but the problem is that the Bible teaches that to worship anything other than the Lord or anyone is idolatry. Idolatry is essentially the worship of any created thing. Now, you take all of creation and you put it on one side of the aisle and then you leave what is not created on the other side of the aisle and what do you have on the other side of the aisle? God. That's all. So idolatry is the worship of anything other than God. Now, sometimes we look and say, well, you know, I don't have any kind of pagan aisles up in my house or anything like that. I'm no idolater. Do I worship money? Is that, see, the, 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 whatever is my master passion in life, that's what I worship. What do I get out of bed for in the morning? What do I think about all the time in life? What do I sacrifice for in life? It's easy to identify the master passion. Everybody's a worshiper. Everybody's a worshiper. We've been made to worship. We all worship. This is a matter of, of what do we worship. And to identify it, what is my master passion? So it could be money. It can be position, it can be popularity, it can be power, it can be material things, it can be a lot of things. Idolatry can be the worship of Mary. She's a created thing. The worship of the saints, they're created things. The worship of another human being, the worship of relationships. 
as a master passion in life. It's idolatry because it's worship of something that is uh, created. So uh, this is what she's saying. You go ahead and, and worship uh, these things. Now, it's interesting, for those of you who take notes related to all of this, the Holy Spirit had spoken uh, long before this about uh, regarding this eating things uh, offered to idols uh, through the Apostle Paul. He had addressed it decades earlier in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I think also in uh, chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. But Paul wrote there, and he said, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all things do not edify. Uh, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever's sold in the meat market, you know, asking no questions for conscience' sake. Uh, for the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to a dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. So all, the meat that was sold in the markets in those days, some of it was offered to idols, some of it wasn't offered to idols. The meat that was offered to idols because so much meat was offered to idols was cheaper. So he said, you know, when you, when you, when you go and somebody invites you to their house uh, for dinner and they put a, a T-bone steak in front of you, don't say, was that offered to idols? We, we know that idols are nothing. They have no influence over us. We know there's a demon behind them, uh, Paul said, in, in the demonic realm. But this is what he goes on and says further in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. But if anyone says to you, as they put the T-bone steak down in front of you. That's my insertion. And, and they say, this was offered to idols. Do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you. And for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why should my liberty be judged by another man's conscience? And so Paul says, don't partake of meat offered unto idol, idols, not because it's going to do any harm to you, any more than having a black cat run across your path or walking under a ladder or losing your lucky rabbit's foot. I trust you don't have a lucky rabbit's foot, but, you know, these kinds of things, they have no power over us. But for the sake of the person who watches us, they say this was offered to an idol and we eat it, and then they come to the wrong conclusion that we're just like them or that our God is just like the gods that they worship. He said that's the one you, ha you have to say no so that they aren't confused about Christianity. Now, in all of this, this uh, uh, that she was doing here in Thyatira, she is just like the Old Testament uh, Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, uh, one of the queens of of uh, Israel. She was married to a man, a king by the name of Ahab. And Ahab was one of the kings of the northern uh, uh, kingdom of Israel. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were the single most evil and wicked uh, king that, and queen that the northern kingdom of Israel ever had. And the northern kingdom of Israel never had one good king. They never had a single one. 
So here you're talking about evil in the context of evil. You're talking about wicked in the context of wicked. She was the daughter of a Sidonian king, and uh, it was a political marriage. So uh, here is uh, uh, the king of Sidon. He comes to uh, Ahab and says, listen, let's not fight between our kingdoms. Let me give you one of my daughters as a wife. Um, And then, uh, so if I attack you, it would be attacking family. If you attack me, it would be attacking family. We won't do that. And so it assures some peace between the two kingdoms. She becomes Ahab's uh, wife. And the problem is, is when she comes from Sidon, she brings all of her false gods with her. Principally, the worship of the God of Baal. And when she comes into the nation of Israel, she begins to introduce the worship of Baal uh, along with the worship of uh, the Lord uh, in that northern kingdom. And then once she's got a foothold, she begins to physically attack and and persecute and even murder the prophets of the Lord. And her intent is to wipe out the worship of Jehovah and establish within Israel the worship of of Baal. And uh, that was her methodology. Her methodology was very simply to mix, to just mix the ways of the world into the worship of the Lord, and then when uh, the world is brought into the church and all, it'll destroy its distinctiveness and its holiness and its power, and uh, uh, which is its strength, and then we'll be done with it. Now, one of the interesting things to me uh, about all of this uh, with Thyatira is that there's no record in the letter of religious persecution against the church. There is no record of an attack against the church from the outside. It is not a great, uh, great, great, greatest kind of pagan center like the other, other cities were. But for this church, the danger came from within. And that's the devil's method. If he can't beat them, uh, then he says, well, we'll join them. And that's exactly what he uh, did here in, in Thyatira. And I think it's a good warning for uh, churches like ours and churches in this country that uh, we exist and we serve the Lord in a part of the world where there is not an active outward physical persecution against us. And sometimes when you're in that kind of a place in the world, you have to keep your guard up doubly because then the greatest danger to the church will come from within. And in this vein, I thought it was fascinating within the last uh, three months or so, there's a particular uh, mainline denomination in the United States, and this denomination is represented, excuse me, all around the world. And they endeavored to to make uh, homosexuality, to remove it as a sin uh, within the church and even as a sin to be practiced by uh, the priests of the leaders within, within, that, within that church. I'm not talking about Roman Catholicism, by the way. And uh, so they're ramrodding this thing all, you know, fast-tracking it through the denomination. And because within the United States they have such influence and power and all, looks like they're going to be successful. When out of the blue, out of the third world blue, if you'll excuse the expression, the pastors of... these particular churches in Africa stood up and said, you're not going to do it. 
and they resisted them. And the strength for holiness in making a stand came not from where things are soft and easy, but the stand was made by those that were paying a greater price on a daily basis to stay faithful uh, to the Lord. And I think it's a, a good observation and, and a, good, a good warning. Now, why was she able to exert such uh, destructive influence upon Israel, this, this Jezebel? Why was she able to do it? A weak husband. A weak husband. Weak leadership in the home. Weak leadership in the nation. He was not leading as he should. And she came in and she filled the vacuum. Why was this Jezebel and Thyatira able to exert such destructive influence upon this church? Weak leadership. Weak leadership within that church. Because of weak leadership in the church that tolerated the false teaching that she had brought in. She has no business teaching the congregation at all to begin with of both men and women. I refer you to my, the tapes on Second Timothy related to that. But this false doctrine and false prophets and prophetesses, they exist within a local church and more broadly because of weak leadership within the church. Leaders who lack a fear of the Lord. Now notice... In verse 21, <clears throat> her failure to heed Jesus' warning to, to her to repent of her sexual immorality calls her to repent, have a change of mind that produces a change of direction in her life in terms of what she's doing. He had called her to repent. He had given her space or time uh, to repent. God is so patient. When, when you see God bring judgment down on an individual human life or on a church or on a particular situation, you can know and I can know from our own experience, can't we, that he has been warning and warning and warning and warning for a very long time and nobody was heeding his warning. So this is the case of a woman who is misguided. She doesn't know the scriptures and she's doing something out of her ignorance and, and uh, all of this, but she's very sincere and, and uh, just sincerely wrong and all. She knew what she was doing. She'd been confronted by God related to this. And she digs in and, and she decides that she's going to uh, do it in spite of God's word and in spite of, of his warnings. Well, uh, you can do that. A person can do that. It's crazy to do that. Uh, because without repentance in, in a life of sin, then I force God uh, to uh, judge me. And so he speaks verse 22 about the judgment that he promises to bring upon her and also those who commit adultery with her he said verse 22 I will cast her into a sick bed in other words I will cast her sick beds a hospital bed sick bed is a death bed I will cast her from her well-perfumed uh, bed of adultery into a sick bed 
bed. And uh, how often that's the way that it is, even today, isn't it, where the bed of, of adultery and fornication, pretty soon it becomes a deathbed through the sexually uh, transmitted diseases. So her adultery is a spiritual adultery, doubtless a physical adultery too, and the Lord warns that that's the judgment that is coming. And then he says, she, verse 22, and those who commit adultery with her will be cast into great tribulation and sin. Uh, like she is leading them into all sin, really. It leads to great trouble. It leads to great tribulation. I love the quote that somebody has uh, said, and it certainly has stuck with me, and that is, uh, sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It is forbidden because it's bad. There's a big difference between the two. God knows what sin will do to our bodies, to our minds, to our hearts, to our spirits. And uh, that's why he forbids the sin. He says, I will kill her children with death. And this speaks of, of her followers, that a, a sure judgment of death uh, will come upon them. And their only hope is to repent of their deeds. Now notice in verse 23, the latter part of it, he describes the effect that this judgment will have on all of the churches. He said, all of the churches shall know that Jesus is he who uh, searches the minds and the hearts. The judgment that he's going to bring on them, he's saying, will be so dramatic that it will produce a fresh concern for holiness in everybody's life that has watched that. You ever seen God judge somebody? Someone's going along and going along and going along and going along and you know God is warning them. You know God is warning them. Maybe he's used you to warn them and they're going and going and going. And then one day, I mean, you can pick up the newspaper and there they are. Or one day the word comes to you and boom, this has happened. And what does it do? Does a person look and say, Boy, I tell you, I told them a thousand times, and that's the stupidest thing. No. What happens is you fall on your face before the Lord, and there's a fresh appreciation for His holiness, and that this is a real thing that we're involved in called the body of Christ, that a real God is looking out after, and that He will, with tremendous a discipline when he's forced to protect what it is that he's done. When, when, I, when I sometimes, and you know, what was it, 10, 15 years ago, where some of the very, very prominent ministers fell, I didn't look at that and say, boy, I'll tell you, that's not, that could never happen to me. Boom, on my face. Remember where that kind of thing goes or any sin goes. And it produces a fresh awe and respect in our hearts for holiness and to say, I never want to be in that place. I never want to put God in that place. And, that, and that's what the judgment does. God doesn't want to do it, but when he's forced to do it, he will. And then notice that he says in verse 23, he reminds uh, the reminder that uh, each will be given according to their works. In other words, his judgment or his discipline, it's never unfair. It's always proportional to uh, what the sin or the sinner deserves. It's never more, it's never less. Now notice in verses 24 and 25, Jesus' counsel 
uh, to them uh, in the church, those that haven't followed her teaching. And uh, uh, Jesus calls it the depths of Satan because she was probably coming and saying, you know, I know this isn't in the Bible, but these, these things are deeper than what you find in the Bible. Really? Deeper than the Bible? You must really be smart. Okay, come to our meetings and we'll tell you all about the deeper things that you don't find in the Bible. And Jesus comes in and says, it, it, concerning that deeper life club, they, they're not plun, you know, uh, plunging into the depths of, of, the depths of God. They, they're taking people into the depths of, of, of the devil. And so he tells these Christians that haven't followed her, they're within the church, they don't want any part of what she's doing, they get it and all, that they need to uh, just steer clear of all of it. And verse 25, that they're to hold fast to what they have until he comes at the rapture of the church. Stay faithful to me in the middle of this mess that you're in the middle of and uh, until I come back. Now you look at it, we're, here we are in, in uh, Modesto, California, and what are there? Uh, 150 to 300 churches in town. <laughs> you look at it and say, leave the church. Go find another one. You know that's right. But in those days, many times there was just one Christian church within, within the city. And, uh, and so he says, you just stay faithful to me until I come. And then he gives the promise to uh, the overcomer in verses 26 through 28. And uh, Jesus will give the overcomer, verses 26 and 27, the power over the nations. All right. <laughs> Finally, somebody understands uh, my uh, abilities in life. What he's referring to, he quotes from Psalm 2, which is a psalm that speaks of the Messiah's uh, millennial reign, of Jesus' millennial reign or his thousand-year reign in the world following his second coming. And Jesus is basically saying here that we will rule and we will Uh, reign with him during those thousand years and during that thousand years no evil will be tolerated no sin no rebellion against God it will be a perfect peace upon the world during that time of of his reign and we will rule uh, with him during that time we'll be overseeing some uh, part of the world perhaps on on his behalf it's not not that we're making decisions there but we're receiving his instruction and in doing what he tells us uh, to do there and uh, what city are you going to be over uh, during the millennium will it be Escalon okay all right just relax will it be Maui you know, Santa Barbara what will it be but we don't know. They'll all be good. By the way, all those places will be gone. Don't know anything about the tribulation. <laughs> There'll be new coastlines and all of that. Buy property in Modesto. It's, it's probably going to be right on the coast <laughs> following all of that. So I, that is not a word at all on anything. So. So remember the, the parable of the minas and uh, uh, Jesus likened himself to a man who was going off on a long journey to a far place and he gave ten minas to three different people and 
the one brought the ten minas back and he said I've worked with the ten he said occupy till I come and the ten has gained another ten and Jesus said you know well done thou good and faithful servants you, you've been faithful in a few things and I'll make you over, a ruler over ten cities and uh, the guy that had the ten he came and it had done five and so a ruler over five cities so where we're going to rule and what and the position and all of that during that thousand years seems to be tied to our, our faithfulness to the ministry that he has uh, called us to uh, today now notice uh, Jesus then says in verse 28 that he will give the overcomer uh, the morning star and in chapter 22 Jesus refers to himself as the bright and morning star so it speaks of of just having uh, him and uh, refers to Jesus's return uh, to rapture the church before uh, the darkness of the great tribulation and all of that precedes the uh, dawning of a new day or a new age called the millennial uh, kingdom so we'll return with him at his second coming uh, to bring an end to the darkness of the great tribulation and then to usher in uh, the kingdom uh, age and so that's our portion with him and so the promise to the overcomers within that church that we're going to rule with the Lord Jesus and enjoy a relationship with him uh, forever and ever and then he closes it verse 29 with an exhortation to have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches now, I really like these letters to, of Jesus to the seven churches because in the Gospels he's talking all of the time the kingdom of God the kingdom of God the kingdom of God and and he's dealing with uh, Christians and the kingdom of God in a very broad kind of base very wonderful very effective and all but so often it's as we go into the epistles that we find out what a church is supposed to be like what it's to emphasize what it's to teach and all of these things but here we come to the revelation and here we get specific instruction from him on what he likes to see and what he doesn't like to see in a local church that is claiming to represent him and so that's why these seven letters are a revelation of him what he likes what he doesn't like what's important to him what is unimportant to him and so letter to the church of Ephesus the importance of first love to him to Smyrna the importance of being obedient and committing to him even to the point of death to the church of Pergamus he revealed how important it is that we do not compromise his word in in our private lives and then in this letter to the church in Thyatira we have a warning on his part because they have an unbiblical tolerance to false teaching the compromise that was in the heart of Pergamus it, it ultimately now became a, a, a gave way to an open tolerance of false teachers and false uh, teaching there in Thyatira so we ask ourselves as a church I mean solemnly tonight with joy but solemnly and, and we allow this letter to search us and say have we allowed any false teaching or teachers to attach themselves to this ministry and it's a good thing to have search a church or a ministry and then as individuals we ask ourselves have I allowed anyone uh, allowed myself to come under the influence of any false teacher or teaching or any false prophet and if I have then to repent of that 
so that I don't incur the judgment that is surely going to come to them. I think all of this is very modern. It's as new as it was 2,000 years ago. Nothing new under the sun. What's the big buzzword today? Tolerance, 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 tolerance. And there is unbelievable pressure, not just on people in the world, but upon the church to be tolerant of everything and of every goofy doctrine that is going around. And to make a stand against those things is to be esteemed intolerant or esteemed to be unloving. And so you have, you know, this uh, uh, pressure to be tolerant of of everything, even what is called wicked and evil uh, in the Bible. And it's interesting, uh, those who don't condemn sin anymore and, and uh, won't stand up against that, whether in the culture or within the church now, they're considered bright and intelligent and loving and enlightened. But make a stand against sin and make a stand against false doctrine and against evil. And what's the label we get? What's the label I, I get? A bigot, extremist, you know, uncaring, unloving, self-righteous, dangerous, you know, these kinds of things. Of course, the other side never sees themselves as intolerant. That they're being intolerant of me and their definition of tolerance. But this is the blindness that, that goes on in the world today. No, we better stick to the Bible. We better stick to God's definitions of how to love Him and how to love our fellow man. Because that's what we're here for. Jezebels, the false teachers, the false prophets, the false prophetesses, they flourish in the church for one single great reason alone. Weak leadership in the church. Leaders who have lost the fear of the Lord. Do you think about all of the false doctrine the Apostle Paul had to fight against in establishing so many churches and then keeping them protected from all of the false doctrine around them? And, and he writes about it. He said in Galatians, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what we have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, that is supremely, I would not be a servant of God. You think that's easy for Paul to say? Ah, that's just, Paul just says stuff like that. It was in his nature. He paid an enormous price to make that stand. And you know why he made that stand? The fear of the Lord in him that kept him safe in his ministry and what was under his oversight as being safe. I'll tell you why. Because it would be, have been a lot easier for him and others to just get tired in the battle, give up, throw your hands up in the air and say, okay, let everyone have their own way. And you know what keeps you from doing that? It's the fear of the Lord. And sometimes, and I'm closing with this, and sometimes leaders in a church 
can turn a blind eye toward wrong things because they simply get tired of fighting the constant, 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 constant pressure to compromise the Word of God. And when they get tired, they give up the battle and they give in to the culture. And I would say in light of the church, letter to the church at Thyatira, would you please pray for the leadership in this church that we do not get tired in the battle and it happens and just throw our hands up in the air and allow the thing to be gobbled up by the culture but to continue to try and stand against it but it doesn't just happen to a church as a whole it happens also in individual believers the father or the mother who gets tired of fighting the children regarding the entertainment that comes into the house the music that comes into the house the television that's watched in the house the video games that are allowed into the house the head of companies experience the same kind of thing the constant pressure to compromise the biblical standard in their business and the pressure is constant upon them and we need to pray for one another in the middle of this same battle that we all face in one degree or another we all face the same battle do you need to turn from something tonight and I speak to myself too some compromise some Jezebel that has been allowed into our family or into our home by way of technology or whatever it might be and, and we know it's wrong to have it in the house. We know the children shouldn't be listening to it. We know they shouldn't be watching it. We know they shouldn't be playing uh, uh, it. And, and we know that we only allowed it in because they caught us at a weak moment, at a tired moment. We were tired of fighting. We couldn't fight anymore. We threw our hands into the air and said, fine, go ahead and buy it and bring it in. And the importance tonight to just stop and, and commit to doing the right thing in the little church that we have oversight of in our little family. Throughout the Bible, the Christian life and, and ministry is constantly likened to warfare because that's what it is. It's a constant, constant, constant battle. It really is. But God will give us the strength to stand in the battle so we don't throw our hands up in the air in our moments of weakness and allow the culture to overrun us as it did in the church of Thyatira. Let's stand together and we'll pray for one another.